city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. Workplace violence is becoming a dangerous situation in the United States, and it's growing year by year. In 2017, according to our most recent government figures available, 458 workplace homicides took place across our nation, with 351 of those being shootings. The year earlier, there were 500 workplace homicides, including 394 fatal shootings. Who better to discuss this dynamic with me than my favorite board-certified forensic psychologist, Dr. Joni Johnson. Joni, welcome to the show, A Threat of Evidence. Thank you so much, Dr. Ron. As always, I'm so happy to be here. Well, you know, it's it's always great working with you because you're such a phenomenal behaviorist. You know, I handle the law enforcement side and, and, and the forensic side of this, but you have a specialization uh, in your wheelhouse on workplace violence. So, you know, with this most recent shooting uh, I want to talk with you about, uh, I thought no better person to, to bring you onto the show. So let's just start right off with that shooting. Joni, why don't you present that case to us? This is, as always, a really tragic case that happened really a few weeks ago in February of this year when you had a 45-year-old employee, Gary Martin, who came into work. Uh, He was called into work. Apparently, he was going to be fired from the Henry Pratt Company in Aurora, Illinois, and he must have had some heads up about that. I don't think he was told ahead of time that he was going to be terminated, but he had been in trouble for a couple of rules violations, which the company has not elaborated on. So he basically came into work, was called into an office, and was uh, um, took a break, uh, which we know is really something that we should never do in a difficult situation like that. Um, But he came in uh, and had a gun and and brought it into the termination meeting. And when they terminated him, he pulled it out and shot and killed several people in the meeting and then proceeded to kind of go on a rampage through the warehouse and killed at least one other person. Ended up getting in a big gunfight with police officers, shot and wounded five police officers, although fortunately they were able to survive. And he himself was also killed in this kind of shootout. So it's a situation where you had an employee, and of course, as the story, as it always does, Dr. Ron, and you know, when you investigate these things, either during the time that it's happening or after the fact, you find out a lot of other things. For example, this is somebody who had um, been convicted of domestic violence before. Some uh, One of his former girlfriends had taken out two restraining orders on him. He had been convicted of, of aggravated assault. So then, of course, everybody begins to kind of say, how could this person slip through the cracks? 
Well, you know, it's always twenty twenty hindsight. Uh, you know, Dr. Joni, I've worked on a, a number of acting shooter uh, incidents in the United States. As a matter of fact, I do the psychological profiles and psychological autopsies on a number of across the nation. And, and this man just fits the profile that I've seen so many times. And uh, it, it's just amazing uh, that these people do slip through the cracks. But I think you and I... Uh, today are going to discuss some of the issues and some of the challenges for employers. And I think people would probably better understand how these people do fit through the cracks. You know, it's just so interesting uh, because we see an increasing level of gun violence. And as a matter of fact, I think our most recent statistics show that about 75% of all occupational homicides are as a result of, of gun violence. And uh, non-fatal workplace assaults result in over 900,000 lost workdays and about $1,600 million annually in lost wages. So this is, this is a growing problem across the United States. It really is. I mean, it's kind of amazing to talk about the number of homicides, but what's even more startling is when we think about the fact that 2 million American workers every year say they have experience some form of workplace violence. So it's not a rare occurrence. Now, the shootings, of course, is a relatively rare occurrence. But again, you know, one of the things that I was talking about earlier is how important it is for employers to look at this as kind of the, t the, the homicides are the tip of a very large iceberg. And it's the, the iceberg that's under the water that oftentimes we don't see until it's too late, until yeah, it you pops know, up to the surface. Exactly. And, of course, any time that there is homicide and it's associated with a firearm, of course, the media is going to jump all over it. But as, as you're discussing with me right now, I think you're right. It's the tip of the iceberg, and, and the, the, the part of the iceberg that lies underneath the water are all of these assaults and all of this other stuff that has in the, happens in the workplace uh, between uh, employees and their bosses or employees and coworkers. Absolutely. You know, one of the challenges, and it is challenging. One of the, my favorite stories is talking about when I worked at a local mental health agency many years ago. And so we're this whole entire agency, Ron, is filled with mental health professionals, as you can imagine. And so I had worked with this coworker of mine for a couple of years, and she was a delightful person. And all of a sudden, one day she came to work. And the first person to notice was, of course, not a mental health professional, but our receptionist. And she came back and said, I'll call this person person, Susan. Susan's not acting right. She's Something's wrong with Susan. And we're all kind of like, oh, you know what, she's fine. Or, you know, we, so we all went and started talking to her and, and she was clearly not fine. And as it turns out over several hours of investigation and kind of crisis management, she was having a psychotic break at work. And her behavior became kind of increasingly bizarre, and she became irritable, and she started looking at all of us and saying, what are you doing? And, and, and yet here we are, Ron. We are the epitome of people who should know what's going on. Here's a crisis. This is a person who's having some kind of meltdown. She wasn't threatening directly, but she was very angry. She had made some kind of hostile gestures to our receptionist. And it took us a few hours for all of us to kind of get through our denial and well, take some kind of action. Exactly. Isn't that because, and I know they're mental health professionals, but isn't there a compliancy or, I'm sorry, a complacency issue for all of us at work? 
you know, it's not just the denial. We're just sort of in our own routines and, and oh, the person is probably just going to be fine because, you know, 99% of the time that we have um, an encounter with this person or relationship with the person, they are fine. And so when, when something's out of the ordinary, it tends to uh, hit us in a way where we're complacent instead of saying, like, you know, one, one of my Martinelli's rules is, what's wrong with this picture? Right. All of a sudden something changes. Well, you need to snap out of that complacency because something's wrong. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. And we talk about denial and you were just talking about it a little bit. But the other piece of that, I think, is just avoidance. And, and that oftentimes is just not it's just not really paying attention to what's going on and not wanting to see what's going on. Right. Right. At the time. And it just goes back to, you know, what we talk about in our active shooter training and our response to active shooter training is that if you see something, you got to say something and it call other people's attention to that. I'm glad in that particular case that the receptionist was astute enough to notice that this person was out of sorts. Yeah, I mean, that's it's really, really true. I mean, I don't know if you've ever worked with somebody, Ron, or known somebody that this person was just a problem. They were erratic, they were irritable, they were unpredictable, um, and yet it, it, the whole entire workplace kind of revolved around this person, kind of maneuvered around, didn't really want to, you know, rock the boat, um, and yet it was these kind of things that ended up resulting in a tragic situation because we, people just kept ignoring that and maneuvering and, you know, again, um, right. and that's just something that, you know, is, is dangerous. Well, you know, I think that's something that that we can talk about later, too, the, the things to stay away from. You know, and one of those things is, is number one, you got to maintain your situational awareness, and you cannot practice avoidance. You know, some people, and I find this increasingly, the, the situation today, is that people are so worried about offending other people, and other people are you know, uber offended or hyper offended about everything. So we, we tend to get involved in, in, in a workplace environment that we're not comfortable with. And, and, it, and it's easier to try to avoid something that we think might lead to you know, confrontation rather than having a good, uh, being centered, number one, and having good situational awareness and being able to evaluate and assess. Now, I think I'm probably going to end up talking like a mental health professional <laughs> instead, instead of a law enforcement and forensic professional. But, you know, the things that I always, when I'm teaching officers uh, to deal with people out in the field, I said, look, there's four criteria that we need to be able to assess and evaluate. Number one, verbal. What are they, first of all, are they talking at all? And if they're talking, what are they saying and how are they saying it? Number two, physical. Take a look at that person physically. What do they look like? Number three, behavioral. You know, what, how are they behaving? Is that out of the norm? Is that the way we know this person? Is it something that could, could lead to some sort of uh, risk? Uh, for that to that person or to other people, and number four, are they are they presenting with any psychological problems? Right, and, and we we don't need to be a, a Dr. Joni Johnston, where we're a board certified forensic psychologist. We just need to use common sense and have situational awareness about the people that we're working with every day. That's definitely absolutely true, and there have been so many. I mean, they're just increasing. Uh, 
litigation about it. I don't know if you're familiar with this jury in Texas um, that awarded recently more than a million dollars in a negligent hiring lawsuit just because um, um, they filed it against a company because nobody was paying attention. Nobody was doing anything. And, and a, a guy ended up shooting and killing his co-worker. And this particular person had made numerous threats, um, had been erratic, had been unstable in his behavior. Um, also, he hadn't received any training or education on identifying you know, workplace violence and what you're supposed to do. And this kind of come back to, came back to haunt this particular employer. Well, you know, Dr. Joni, I think that's an excellent segue where we can get into the definition of what workplace violence is. Can you help us with that? I can because it's much broader than many of us think. We tend to think of it as being some kind of physical attack or physical affront, and it certainly can be that, but it's much broader. It really involves any behavior, and that can be verbal, it can be physical, it can be something that's seen, it can be something on the email, on social media, that basically targets a person and threatens them physical harm. And how about the profile of the person most likely to commit an act of workplace violence. Can you help our audience with that? Well, it's really interesting because when you look at the history of threat assessment, you see that we've kind of moved from attempting to psychologically profile somebody to looking at specific behaviors. And the reason for that is because we found that, yes, there were some common demographics that you would see in people who, be who became violent at work, but the problem was the actual attack or the actual workplace violent incident was, is so rare that we can't, if we use these demographics, if we use these profiles, um, a man between this particular age who's divorced or who's a loner or et cetera, et cetera, what we're going to do is we're going to maybe find the person who's going to perpetrate this. But the problem with Dr. Ron is we're going to also include a bunch of false positives. So we're right. going to identify exactly. too many people. No, exactly. You know, I attended the uh, behavioral science unit uh, school for the Federal Bureau of Investigation on, uh, you know, criminal psychological profiling, homicides and, and, and sexual assaults. And people need to remember when, when people start like the CSI shows and everything, they start talking about, you know, profiling this and profiling that. They really have to remember that the profilers at, at the FBI that started this whole thing at the, you know, behavioral science unit, you have to remember they're looking at thousands of things and then tabulating that information and coming out with just a very broad assessment of a profile. So you're absolutely right. There can be a lot of false positives. And another thing that most people in, uh, in, in TV land and radio land don't understand because they watch so many of these CSI shows, which about 85% is, you know, not accurate, is that they... Um, they only call in a profiler when they need to literally pull a rabbit out of the hat, okay? So, you know, profilers are not used, you know, all the time like you see on television. And it is, they, they tell us in profiling school that if you're even 20% accurate, out of 10 points in a profile, if you're only 20% accurate, you're doing phenomenally well. Well, guess what? In any school, 20% is a big red F, isn't it? Yes. So I am right with you. It's all about behavior. 
And so when we talk about specific behaviors, there's kind of like two different categories that we look at. First of all, we're looking for problem employees or problem behaviors. And some of those troubling signs that we see that we hope we catch before it becomes an imminent workplace threat are things like the person's performance is deteriorating over time. We're seeing poor attendance and absenteeism. This is somebody who constantly blames other people. They're, they're not getting along with other people. Um, maybe they have more accidents. Maybe we find out they have domestic, domestic problems at home. We have somebody who just can't get along with other people. They have, you know, again, domestic violence problems. So this is somebody who is likely to hold a grudge. They're kind of hostile. Um, and so there, there's some personality characteristics or some situational factors that we look at. And these are things that we talk about when we're talking about preventing workplace violence. They're kind of proactive things. Mr. Employee, Miss Supervisor, Miss Manager, these are things we want you to be aware of. When people are coming to you and saying, this person was screaming at me, this person's irritable, this person's performance is going down, there's a change in this person's behavior, this person is moody, this person, I think has alcohol in their breath. These are all things that are problem, you know, problems in the workplace and they're conduct problems. So we're hoping to catch, you know, this wider net of individuals who are having the, or this person's acting bizarrely. I've done several fitness for duty evaluations where a person over a period of time became increasingly that had mood swings. They were not getting along with people, their behavior had changed. And so we actually ended up doing, I ended up doing a fitness for duty evaluation. This person wasn't actively threatening. They weren't actively targeting a certain person. They weren't, you know, there was no leakage or anything like that. So in that situation, we were able to get this person a fitness for duty evaluation and they ended up getting some psychological help. So that's the bigger picture. Yeah, and I get that. And, and, and I think what we're looking at, or maybe what you're saying, is we're looking for patterns of behavior uh, and, and not trying to be vague and ambiguous. So, Joni, let's continue this fascinating conversation in just a minute. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist, with my co-host this evening, Dr. Joni Johnston, a board-certified forensic psychologist on a threat of evidence on America Out Loud. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. It's AmericaOutloud.com, where the conversation never ends. With 24-7 streaming on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Dr. Joni Johnson, board-certified forensic psychologist, and I have been having a fascinating discussion on workplace violence. And Joni, you were talking about patterns of behavior and things to look out for. Let's get back in and unpack another one of your cases where we can discuss this issue of workplace violence and how this particular incident precipitated. 
This is kind of an interesting, well, two cases kind of come to mind, but I'll talk about one because I think sometimes the whole issue of domestic violence in the workplace gets swept under the rug. And unfortunately, more and more companies, I think, are realizing the need to have a specific domestic violence policy, just both in terms of protecting the potential victim and also just making it clear to employees that any kind of violence, even if it's toward a partner that you work with, is certainly against company policy. But this was a situation where you had two individuals who were actually working in the same place. And um, they had a pretty chaotic relationship for a long period of time. They were able to keep it outside of the workplace, but they began having some marital issues and that resulted in a separation. And things just went from bad to worse. So the... um, individual, the male individual ended up moving out of the home. He became increasingly um, upset and distressed when it became evident that this history of domestic violence, she had reached the end of the rope. And so she went to HR. And again, it was a very complicated situation because you have two employees who both work for the same company. And so I was called in to do kind of a risk assessment or a threat assessment. And I came in and I, of course, first talked to her and she was pretty alarmed and was able to disclose some things that had happened at home, but he was also calling her at work. He was also um, following her to and from work. He was sending her threatening emails and threatening text and, you know, it was kind of the classic, if I can't have you, nobody else can have you. And we, I ended up interviewing several of her coworkers who were able to corroborate some of the things that um, she said because, of course, one of the challenges in doing any kind of workplace investigation, as you know, is that you have to not only get information, but you have to evaluate the credibility of that information. And so there were some coworkers, and that can be very tricky because one of the things I've learned over, you know, the 20 plus years I've done this is that people's emotions can be very high and yet the actual incident or the complaint, the the emotions cannot be related to the intensity or the severity of the threat. And it's important to kind of separate that not out and not let your own emotions get pulled in and overreact to situation. Um, but in this particular situation, she had it was a very credible threat, and we ended up working with law enforcement. This particular employer employee ended up getting terminated because he just would not continue. He would not discontinue these behaviors. Well, and you know was, that that's interesting. You know, Joni, I wanted to ask you a, a couple of questions because you've done so many of these forensic interviews uh, for witnesses and even uh, you know persons of interest in, in uh, workplace violence. Uh, what kind of questions can you ask and what kind of questions uh, can you not ask during these types of interviews? Well, if you know if it involves the workplace, and actually it can extend beyond the workplace. So depending upon who I'm talking to. So for example, let's say that I'm interviewing the alleged perpetrator who's okay. also an employee. I'm going to ask, you know, what happened? I'm, there's been um, a report of a complaint that you know, there's been some inappropriate conduct in the workplace. I'm going to ask them, what knowledge would you have of that? Because the broad, you know, as you know, the broader you can be at the beginning, the better. Right. 
And so I'm going to listen to that particular person. And if the person says, hey, I never did that, or it was a misunderstanding, then I'm going to talk to that person. I'm going to ask him a lot of questions. So like, is there any reason that somebody would invent this or lie about this incident? Um, Where were you when this incident occurred? Do you have any witnesses who could corroborate your whereabouts at the time of the incident? Um, Or if they don't deny it, but said it was a misunderstanding, then I'm going to ask, okay, you know, what are the circumstances leading up to this incident? Who else was involved? What is your relationship currently to the person making the complaint? Are you aware of any other complaints by this person? Um, And then ultimately, I'm going to tell them specifically what the complaint is and get that person to respond. And I will sometimes say, hey, is there anybody that you think I should talk to that's going to corroborate what you're saying? Um, And one of the things I always ask of anybody, because even when I interview witnesses, I will say, who else should I talk to that might have knowledge about this? And when they say, oh, you know, you need to talk to Dr. So-and-so and and Miss So-and-so and and whatever, I want to ask them, what information do you think I'm going to get from that person? Because sometimes I'll get things like, well, I'm a good worker. I'm a good employee. Or we've been friends for a long time. Well, that might be relevant in terms of character witness, but that's not giving me specific information about what I'm investigating. Right. And, and, and what they try to do classically is they try to deflect and redirect to a different area. You know, you're asking them, you know, probative questions about behavior and they're coming back with, you know, a mitigating comment like, well, I'm a, I'm a very good employee. Well, that doesn't <laughs> That doesn't answer the probative question. Exactly. It deflects, it exactly. deflects and redirects. And, you know, an, another thing, and you, you, uh, you, you uh, talked about this uh, earlier, Joni, in our first segment, is that you really can't, as an investigator, you know, your, your job, your advocacy is for, for truth and evidence. It's not for people or entities. And investigators have to be very, very careful in any type of uh, probative interview that they conduct where they don't, uh, you know, resonate with with the particular side or become an advocate for one side or another, uh, because it's it's easy to do that, especially when when you're presented with with a person that you know, especially a person representing themselves as a victim, and uh, you know they they're a nice looking person, they, they you develop really good rapport with them. And, uh, you know, they're, they're making a representation. You know, our job is, is to not only ask probative questions, but to reconcile, you know, circumstances, states, statements, facts, and forensic evidence to find out what supports any representation by any particular person. We can't, you know, we can't uh, get sucked in on the emotions of something. We can, be, we can be patient. We can be understanding. We can be, you know, uh, supportive. But we always need to be forensic. We do. And, you know, it's complicated in a lot of different um, kind of parameters when you're talking about the workplace, because, you know, one of the challenges I face in going into workplace, number one, I'm often called in when the cat's out of the barn or the horse is out of the barn, I guess is a better, right. a better metaphor. I don't know how many cats live in it's barns. It's okay, I'll forgive you for that. I'll forgive you for that. The horse out of the barn, not the cat. Exactly. <laughs> City girl. <laughs> You're right. I guess the bull is out of the barn. We've talked about that before. But, um, 
but yeah, it's, it's, it's sometimes I've, I'm called in and there's been so many things that have gone on ahead of time and it's important to sort through all that. And one of the challenges for me is we talked about this kind of avoidance or denial earlier is I'll have somebody, I'll come in to do a threat assessment. Um, it, maybe it's a direct or not a, not a direct threat assessment. I do this um, investigation. And of course it comes out that this person has been doing all these other things for a long period of time. None in and of themselves would necessarily be uh terminable offense, but they certainly should have been some kind of progressive discipline. And yet, guess what? Nothing's been done. Right. And, and I see that on my side of the litigation. Uh, I, uh, you just hit the nail right on the head. Uh, and, and it can be anything. Of course, many of my cases are involved in, in the, the law enforcement environment. And we, we call it exactly that, progressive discipline. And when there's a lack of progressive discipline and any accountability from the employee, that's when you're going to just exacerbate the situation. It absolutely does. And of course, what I get sometimes is, okay, let's just fire the person. The person's had no progressive discipline. Right. And yet, as a result of all this, and, you know, one of the things we were talking earlier about this Aurora, Illinois case, when you have Gary Martin who goes in and shoots and kills, um, you know, five uh, workers and and right. all these other ones. This was in a termination hearing, and I've done a lot of work with employers about how do you evaluate. I mean, how do you terminate somebody who's a high risk? So you have a high risk person who's going into a high risk situation, and it's really important to do things a little bit differently. And you know, one of the things that you don't want to do is surprise that person. Right. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Correct. You know, let, let me throw something uh, into into this discussion, uh, Joni, and it deals with, with people, and, and we hope we have some of these people in our audience, but people that are involved in, uh, in uh, human resources, and, and I generally find them not to be very well trained and experienced in, uh, in these types of issues. You know, what, what's your opinion about that? I think that's definitely... A challenge for employers. I mean, who wants to spend money on loss prevention? You right. know, right? Exactly. I mean, they don't want to. I understand. I get that. I'm a business right. person. You're a business person. I understand that. Who wants to prevent? You know, spend money on loss prevention. We want to spend money on profits. And so, you know, number one, you do have HR sometimes with a lack of training. But even worse, to some extent, you have supervisors and managers and the people who are hearing all these things, all these threats, and all these seeing all these things happen. The employees are the last people to get any kind of training on what they should be looking for, what they should right. do if they hear something, who they should right. talk to, how do they defuse a situation. And right. so it just becomes a difficult situation for everybody. Then you have, like you said, these silos of, okay, the employees know something, but they're not speaking up. And then you have the manager who knows something, but they're not telling anybody. And then, you know, you have HR who may or may not know. Well, you know, it just re reminds me, and it doesn't matter what environment it is, you know, the hub of the wheel of uh, – of, of any type of organization, any type of structure, any type of corporation, any type of business is training. Okay, I, I don't care uh, what profession you're in. Training is really the hub of the wheel. How we learn about things, how we learn to do our jobs, how we learn to conduct ourselves, uh, you know, to take orders, to, uh, to function, all comes from training. But the last thing it seems in any type of either governmental or corporate structure, the last place where money gets spent is in training, and it's generally the lack of training that causes a lot of these problems to surface. I think that's definitely true. 
It is. And, and, and again, I think there is a shift and I am an eternal optimist. I will be the first person to say that. But I do think there has been a shift in recognition that this concept we've had for years, that there was work and there's home and there's no um, interplay between the two. I think that's finally resolving itself a little bit or, or changing. And what I mean by that is people who have personal problems bring them to work and they're going to impact work. And we have to deal with that to some extent, whether that's a domestic violence situation, whether that's somebody who's going through a personal crisis, we do have to deal with that whether we want to or not. And that does involve training. Yeah. Do you think that, uh, and I, and I uh, agree with you completely how people are starting to get more training in this area. Do you think it's because uh, of litigation and, uh, and now they're starting to pay a little bit more attention uh, to people like us that tend to be not only experts in this field, but risk managers. Do you find that that's, that argument is starting to resonate with them, that, that you really need to be proactive instead of reactive about these types of things? I do. I think litigation or, you know, losing money is a great motivator. For all of us, right? For all of us. I do have compassion for, I think, every piece in this puzzle because it is difficult. And, you know, we come to work and we think, okay, I'm, a, I'm an engineer, I'm an electrician, I'm whatever, I'm a physician. I shouldn't have to, you know, learn interpersonal skills or how to diffuse situations or how to whatever. But we do. And, you know, I'm, I'm an employer. Again, I don't want to have to spend money dealing, teaching people interpersonal skills or de-escalation strategies and yet if we don't we are going to pay for it down the line oh no we 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 definitely are and you know i'm just going to talk personally uh about my experience in in what i'm seeing in life now and of course we're you know most of us watch television and look at news stories and of course you and i are professionals we're engaged in the field but i just find that the profile of your basic person, at least in the United States, has changed so demonstrably over just the last 10 years. Look at all the things that we're seeing, uh, both from the millennial generation and then this new generation. I forget what, what they call themselves, but everybody just seems to be offense uh, phobic and, and hyper. They have a, a hyper feeling of offense. You have to be so careful of, of what you say. People want safe spaces. Um, it just seems that there's no real adults in the room anymore. And, and parents are not parenting. They're not trying to teach their kids that, you know, uh, life has ups and downs and it's okay to fail. It's more important to, to gain some understanding uh, and a learning experience as to why you failed so you don't have to repeat that. And so you don't have to be so readily offended and in other people because they haven't been parented well. Uh, these are the people that tend to have behavioral problems where they have anger management problems. And then, just like you said, they bring it to the workplace because, as I remind our officers out in the field, when you're talking to people every single day, don't forget that everybody you meet is is experiencing some level of stress every single person you meet you may not readily see it but everybody including you yourself officers and bosses and and supervisors are under some level of stress so you have to understand that the people that you're working with and the people that you're supervising are certainly under stress as well 
That is definitely true. And, you know, one thing we might want to just shift gears a little bit and talk about, because we were talking earlier about threat assessment and with, with more indirect threats or with problem behaviors. And then, there, you know, the, the positive part of this is that we are starting to, to get a better sense of how to look for behaviors that correlate with more of an imminent threat. Um, so, and, and I think that's a good place. Why don't we start on that, Joni? Let, we've got a couple of minutes. Let's just start on that, and we can continue into our third segment. But just go ahead. So one of the things, again, that we're, that we're shifting, we've kind of shifted and looking at workplace violence is we've kind of have made this shift from kind of profiling the, the person who's going to do this to looking at specific behaviors. And I think one of the nice things for us who do threat assessments is there are a lot more tools at our disposal that really have, that are research-based, that look at some of the specific factors that correlate with threat. So they're not, again, we're kind of throwing away the fact that it's this person who's this age and, and this gender and this race and all that. And we're starting to kind of go, okay, here are the things we know are risk factors. So for example, homicidal fantasies or preoccupations, threatening communications, weapon skills and training, pre-attack planning and behavior, stalking or menacing behavior, current job or academic problems, um, loss or personal stressors or negative coping, anger problems, um, somebody who is suicidal, which is something we didn't think about for a long time. We, we used to feel like, um, Dr. Ron, that you're either an internalizer or you're an externalizer, meaning you're going to kill yourself or somebody else. Well, we now know they're just two sides of the same coin. So somebody who is actively suicidal, that is a risk factor in conjunction with some of these other things, you know, substance abuse, increasing isolation, history of violence. So these are some things that we look for um, and we, and you know, there's some really great structured uh, professional judgment tools like the waiver is one that I'm kind of talking about right now that can help us and, and it provides a great consistency in evaluating these threats. If we use this professional judgment, we can do it. Yes, I know. I, I completely agree. Joni, this is a wonderful and such an important conversation. Let's continue it in just a minute. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, and my co-host today is Dr. Joni Johnston, a board-certified forensic psychologist. You're listening to A Threat of Evidence on America Out Loud. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the war on police at Amazon.com. You're back with Dr. Ron Martinelli, and our co-host this evening is Dr. Joni Johnston, a board-certified psychologist. Joni, when we last left off, you were starting to talk about some warning behaviors that lead us into threat assessment. Let's walk down that road. So we were talking about some general problematic things we look for, like substance abuse, suicide risk, um, motivation for violence, anger problems. And one of the things we're, we're also realizing is that there are 
there's kind of this group of behaviors that really, really are red flags for us. And what I mean by that is they're behaviors that research shows that often occur closely in time to violence. And so when we see those, it's really a huge red flag that we need to do something fairly quickly. Some of these, so for example, um, Ron, one of this would be any behavior we call pathway warning behaviors, any behavior that is part of research planning or preparation for an attack. And that could be anything from this person all of a sudden purchased a gun, they're going to a shooting range, they're looking up a diagram on a building. So some preparation activity. Um, Another huge red flag is when we see somebody become increasingly fixated on their grievance. Because as we all know, workplace violence, for the most part, is about a grievance, particularly when it's when we're talking about an employee or an employer situation. And that's somebody who they just are becoming increasingly preoccupied, whether this is some kind of cause they believe in or it's a person they believe has wronged him. And it's to the point where other people are really noticing this. Um, they're, they're, they'll tell each other what's wrong with this person. All they're doing is talking about this. They're angry about about this. Um, and it's it's oftentimes accompanied by this kind of deterioration in their performance. So well, they're you, just tunnel vision on this. Well, you know, this is so accurate, the, the things that you're talking about. You know, I've got a case right now, and I uh, can't give you the specifics, but I'll, I'll tell you the thing that resonates with me on something you just talked about. This whole case started because a kid, this happens in a school, and a kid found a piece of paper that another kid had been writing on that was a basically a diagram of the classroom with the particular people in the classroom that were going to be the targets of this individual. And uh, the school officials uh, got this note from this other student, contacted law enforcement. Law enforcement did a search warrant uh, on the residence because this one kid that wrote this diagram had had behavioral problems in the past. Like you said, there was a profile of prior behavior, and they ended up finding a gun. They found ammunition. Uh, There was actually a plan to take out a teacher and some other kids in the school. Uh, in that diagram, in that that one uh, reporting party, that that one uh, student that that found that diagram, uh, I think undoubtedly saved a lot of lives. Yeah, those are pretty serious things. When you start finding um, notes, or or somebody starts talking about specific targets or a specific plan, um, if you have somebody who's starting to, you know, research other killers who's, you know, again, affiliating with some kind of group. Um, They're starting to kind of dress in a certain way. I mean, there's a lot of different things. Sometimes there's a um, leakage warning. So very rarely do individuals who commit workplace violence threaten the direct target, as I'm sure you know this, Dr. Ron, but almost always they'll communicate to a third party. Yes. This person's going to be sorry. Absolutely. Or you might not want to come yeah. to work today. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or, you know, I'm, I've got to settle the score and I'm going to do it next week or whatever. Um, and then sometimes you'll see this, what we call last resort warning behavior. When you have somebody who becomes increasingly desperate or they'll talk about some kind of time frame, like, you know, I can't put up with this anymore. I don't see any other alternative. Um, 
you know, the, the time for talking is over or they're talking about suicide. So when you start seeing these kind of behaviors, because these are relatively rare behaviors as are, you know, an actual workplace violence incident, these are, th- these are really imminent warning signs. And Joni, let me, let me just put something in here to, to get your uh, response to it. You know, we've become such an increasingly aware society through social media. How does the social media component uh, enter in to provide warning signs? Well, that certainly is a part of a threat assessment. Is you know, almost all companies have um, very clear internet use and computer use policies that say we have the right to look at your internet, your email, et cetera, as part of a workplace assessment. So that certainly would be a, something that would be part of a workplace threat assessment. And then depending upon what was found there or depending upon the totality of the circumstances, they might actually be able to get a search warrant for their private um you know, email, but that would be a pretty, you'd have to have some pretty strong evidence for that. But that's definitely would be part of an investigation. Okay. Now, Joni, there are some laws that uh, are already on the books, but some new laws that are also being proposed and uh, legislation that, that may be voted on soon. Uh, how does that impact, and I know you're based out of California, but how does that impact uh, the whole investigation of, of workplace violence. Well, it's really very difficult for employers right now, I think, to navigate this for a couple of reasons. Number one is California this year became the first state in the country that mandates this workplace violence prevention for healthcare employers. So they're no longer saying we recommend this. They're saying you got to do this. You got to evaluate your workplace. You've got to evaluate your team has got to be involved in this. They've got to help come up with these safety plans. And they really are putting uh, healthcare employers feet to the fire to take a very proactive stance against workplace violence. I, I'm aware also, I believe, that um, in the House, um, the House just recently introduced a bill that would make this health care law kind of a national thing. And there's a lot of employment lawyers in California who are saying, hey, we think the health care precedent is going to affect all employers in California in the near future. So, there's that part of it saying, okay, you're you're responsible employers for doing this. And then as we talked about earlier, on the other hand, is you have this nationwide movement that's kind of called ban the box that's saying, hey, you know, people with prior criminal convictions need to be able to still get a job. And so they're saying, we don't, you know, you can't, not every state, but many states, including Arizona, California, Colorado, um, Tennessee, I could name a bunch of them, I think it's about 30, have said, A, we don't want you to be able to ask anymore in a job application if somebody's been convicted of a crime. You can only ask that after a job offer's been made. And then in some cases, they've said, even if the person's been convicted of a crime, you need, you need to evaluate this and see if this crime they were convicted of is related to their job. Um, and if it's not, then we want you to consider giving that person a second chance. So you kind of have this kind of double whammy or catch-22 for employers. Well, you know, it's even it's even worse for employers. Joni, correct me if, if I'm wrong. Uh, my wife's a business owner in California. She has a number of employees uh, that, that she has on staff. And when she's bringing in, uh, you know, a, a candidate for a job, she can't even ask them, uh, you know, if they've been fired and why they were fired 
right? She can't even do that. She can't even uh, go back to an employer from a resume and ask them, uh, you know, how was this? How was this employee, and were they ever terminated, or you know, uh, questions like that? Because the courts in California have decided that it's too intrusive. So then, how does an employer possibly protect themselves from people that have a history of this stuff? Well, it's a challenge, and I think that you know, it, the, no laws prevent employers from doing background checks, and they should, and they should right. do that diligently, and they should, you know, unfortunately, in the in the situation in Aurora, apparently these two criminal convictions didn't show up on the background check. They actually did a background check and didn't show up, but I, I don't think anything is tying employers' hands for doing a background check, but it does make it much more complicated, um, and, you know, and, and I think that I'm hoping that what we will see is when you have these laws that are squeezing employers in a way that we're going to start seeing more leniency in the courts for the ability to tell the truth when a prospective employer calls and to be able to, to be honest. Right. Um, well, because you have to do something. You, you can't have it both ways. You know, you, you can't uh, handcuff uh, the employer in, in asking, you know, pertinent probative questions about the background of a potential employee and then uh, castigate or litigate that employer when they do ask probative questions. I mean, the object of the game is to not only have a, uh, a well-balanced, productive employee, but to maintain the safety and security of the workspace because you have a responsibility to all of the other employees uh, in your facility. And I, th I think where employers are going to have the most success with this is they just need to always bring back their hiring decisions, their retention decisions um, to the functions of the job. And if they do that, I think they're going to have a better chance. And what I mean by that is, you know, in the past, I mean, I'm a mental health advocate as well, being a psychologist. And in the past, there was some attempt, and this was years ago, some attempt to find out if a person had some kind of mental illness. And if they were depressed or they had bipolar disorder, they would want to not hire that person. And we know that it's not the diagnosis that predicts whether somebody's going to be violent or not, it's that it's just a whole host, you know, a whole host of factors, and right. that as a matter of fact, in general, when you look at the whole spectrum of mental illness, people with mental illness are more likely to harm themselves than be hurt than hurt somebody else. So right. there is a kind of a rationale for some of this stuff, but it is putting employers in a bind, and I think we're in this gap where the laws have changed quickly, and now employers are going to have to figure out how to, you know, navigate this. And it's tough. So, Joni, tell me how social media plays a role in the awareness of potential workplace violence or even in post-incident investigation. Well, like in so many cases, I think that the media is a blessing and a curse in these situations. And it's a blessing and that I definitely think it has raised awareness. And I think people are more vigilant at work. They're more, they're paying more attention. Um, they're aware that this, these kind of things could happen. They're more likely to speak up. But I think the flip side of that is there's the issue of copycatting. People are, again, are aware that these things happen at work. They get a lot of information about how these things happen at work. And the other thing I think from a psychology standpoint is they sometimes spread misinformation. One of the biggest is, of course, that people just snap and there are no warning signs and people just go off, you know, they're 
doing their work one day and just completely lose it and come in to work with a gun or, or do something else. And we know that, as we were talking about earlier, that's certainly not the case in the vast majority of incidents. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because when I do these psychological autopsies of active shooters and I've done some workplace violence people, you know, when you talk to their neighbors or actually even before that, when there's a media interview, and I'm sure you've seen many of these, there's a media interview of neighbors and they say, well, you know, he was such a nice man. I mean, and, and they get into it. And you said he was so quiet, you know, but he had that side to him. Right. Yeah. And then I'm going, okay, time for me to ask more probative questions. So, you know, I totally get that. And, and so how about the post incident investigations? What would someone like you, Joni, who is involved in workplace violence, forensic investigations, post incident, how do you go about doing your job in the social media area? Well, certainly when we're talking about evaluating after the fact, um, and this is something I know you can relate to so well, is that we have these cognitive biases. And two of them that come to mind immediately, one is the hindsight bias, which is the Monday morning quarterbacking. And right. so once we know the outcome, we fill in the gaps. And we oftentimes hold people to the standard as if they knew at the time this was going to happen. And they didn't know. So it's easy for us to go back and, and paint this picture, uh, this really nice picture of how point A went to point B, went to point C, went to point D, ended up in a shooting. But that's it's much more complicated when you're on the inside before these things happen. And you know that that's very, you know, correct because you know when I do the officer involved shootings, there's actually some case law, federal case law, and it's called Graham v. Connor. And what it says that me as the expert, I have to stand in the shoes of the officers and you know, make my determinations and my findings and opinions based on what the officer knew or did not know at that moment. I can't use 2020 hindsight. And there is so much research in psychology and sociology that shows that if subjects know the outcome of something, they will evaluate the things that occurred before that very differently. And it's difficult sometimes to communicate that to a jury or to a judge because they do know the outcome. And they are doing a little bit of the Monday morning quarterbacking. And that really is a challenge for anybody who's been in the midst of it before the bad thing happens. Well, you know, that that's excellent because when I work uh, – against opposing experts and I look at their forensic reports and they're called in federal court at least they're called rule 26 B's and I look at them and I see a lot of times they do the 2020 hindsight which is really precluded you know so I tell you know the the attorneys who you know know I said you know this is going to be excluded or at least this testimony is going to be limited because he's trying to interject things that the officer really didn't know Joni that would be the same thing that you would do on behalf of let's say a company or a school that is getting sued for you know active shooter or workplace violence I mean they either know or they don't know I mean it can go either way right Absolutely. And like we've said, you know, when you talk about rare events like workplace violence, like school shootings, it's very difficult to pick a needle out of a haystack. And we're not very good at doing that. That's exactly right. Hey, you know, let's switch gears uh, for a little bit. Let's just talk about Dr. Joni Johnston. So, Joni, let's kind of go over some of the specialized training that you've had to deal with cases in workplace violence. 
Well, one of the benefits um, that I've received over the years, as I mentioned to you earlier, is that I tend to get called in a lot of times before these things escalate because one of the things the media does that you know, I think distorts our view of things is they talk about workplace violence as just homicide or this major assault. And yet I see so many instances of things starting to escalate or things getting to a medium point. And, th- and there's so many things that employers, managers, supervisors can do to interrupt this path toward violence. And so it's been nice to be involved in training and expert witness stuff at that level because it helps me see not just the, you know, when the volcano when it blows, but all of the lava, I guess, that's circulating around. And that's really our best opportunity to intervene. And, you know, and that's kind of what we were talking about earlier uh, in our conversation today when we were talking about, you know, how do you tell, you know, uh, what are the 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 messages or whatever with respect to likelihood of occurrence and foreseeability and sometimes there's laws that actually kind of preclude us or preclude an employer for trying to keep their their work environment a safe environment you know, there are lots of double binds for employers, for sure. We were talking earlier about some of these new laws that have been passed. And so you had these, you always had these competing rights in the workplace. You have the safety, um, you know, versus privacy. You have employer versus employee. And so most supervisors, HR professionals, you know, CFOs, um, corporate counsels, they're always walking this fine line anyway between how do we balance the rights of the employee versus the employer. And when you're talking about situations like this, potential violence, misconduct. Um, And also a lot of times, you know, one of the challenges um, is that we see people get promoted. This person's a great engineer. This person's a great scientist. This person's a great worker. But they might not be a great supervisor or manager. And so they don't... Right. Or a leader, and they don't have these interpersonal skills that they need, and so they'll they'll put off dealing with misconduct, they'll put off dealing with poor performance reviews, and then you know things start happening, and then all everything comes up, and they're trying to deal with everything at once, which just clouds the clouds the picture. Well, you know, I've seen this, you know, personally in in supervising other supervisors or assessing other supervisors, where they see, you know, you're talking about a work performance evaluation, what we refer to as a WPE, and they look at having a conversation with an employee where you're going to remediate them, they look at that as being some sort of confrontation. And that's not remediation. It's not confrontation. Remediation is actually constructive training. Well, Joni, this has just been another fascinating conversation with you. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli and my special guest, board-certified forensic psychologist and workplace violent expert, Joni Johnston. You're listening to A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud.